Uh, let us pray together. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. We ask that you would open your word to us, that you would open our eyes, our hearts, and our ears to receive the truth found within it, that we may be formed and shaped by it, and that we may grow more and more in Christ-likeness as a result of it. I pray that anything that is false would be forgotten, anything that is true in accordance with your word would be embraced, understood, and enjoyed. We pray this in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. Well, good morning, Christ Community Church. Uh, my name is Reed Kappel, and uh, I serve as the pastor of high school ministries here at our Leewood campus, and uh, I uh, have a little bit of a little Barry White voice going here. Uh, my, my family, we're a very generous family. We share everything, including sicknesses, and so uh, I'm getting over a little bit of a cold, so you'll have to endure, but uh, it's kind of fun. I kind of like having this lower, deeper voice. It's more intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> Makes up. You know, so if I talk to you on the phone, you can be scared. But when you see me, like, oh, this guy. But um, but anyway, it's good to be with you all. I hope you all had a very good Christmas. We had a lovely time uh, with my family. And um, and w- one thing that, that's great about Christmas are, are Christmas movies. I'm, I'm sure you all have seen Christmas movies. And uh, anybody have like, or has anybody ever seen Home Alone? I'm, I'm guessing some of you. Has anybody watched it? Anybody watch it during Chris, like the Christmas break? All right, some of you guys did. Cool, cool, cool. So. Um, one thing about Home Alone, um, and one thing about me that you should know, is I, I'm not what you would call a winner like in, in life, typically. And I, I, haven't, I haven't won much. I don't have many trophies or, you know, you know ribbons of any kind. But, but the one time that I, I remember winning something of significance that has stuck with me was I was in about fifth grade, fourth or fifth grade. Any fourth, fifth graders in here? Fourth graders? Yeah, all right. All right, so I was, I was there, and around that age, I got a phone call. I was over to a friend's house, and I got a phone call from my brother, and he calls over to my friend's house to notify me of this very important message, and he's like, Reed, Reed, you won, you won, you won, and, and, I'm, and I know instantly what he's talking about because I've been waiting for this day, and so I rush home, and we run with my mom to the Dylan's grocery store to pick up my VHS copy of Home Alone. Yeah. Now... Now, I lost some of you when I said VHS, didn't I? Some of you are like, what? I, I don't know. I don't know what that is. So you can go to the Smithsonian and learn more about that. But um, so I, I put my name in a little box, and I got it. They called me. I like, and I, it was like, in my mind, this was the same as the lottery, which I didn't have very high standards for life, apparently, at that point. But I won Home Alone, and so I was very excited. I watched that VHS copy just over and over and over again. I could memorize I mean, I have like every line of that movie memorized, so it's just great. And, and, and it's a Christmas movie, you know, it obviously takes place during Christmas, which little known fact, the house that the McAllisters lived in is on sale right now. You can, you can go buy that house. I don't know why you're still here, actually. I don't know why you're not bidding on that house right now. But um, so it's a Christmas movie. It's, it takes place, obviously, during Christmas. But it's a Christmas movie maybe in more ways than one. And this might be a bit of a stretch, but it's a story about a family who leaves their young child at home. And they go on vacation, not very dissimilar to the story that we just heard from Luke chapter 2, a young family <laughs> leaves her child, they forget about him, you know, Kevin, Jesus, you know, like it's the same, it's similar, similar. I don't know if that was the intention of the, you know, uh, but 
for this purpose, you know, we're going to say it was inspired by this event. But, but in, in, in a similar fashion, I mean, we have a story of a family has a child, they leave them. And, and this is the story we're going to be looking at this morning. And, and if, you've, if you've been with us throughout Advent, we've been looking at this, this idea of, of asking the question kind of, what a strange way, that's not really a question, but what a strange way to save the world. And, and we've been looking at this very familiar story, the story of the birth of Christ, a story that whether you've been in the church or not, you're moderately familiar with. And it's a story that we, we all are familiar with, but we may not grasp the depth of. And if you're here last week, Pastor Andrew talked about how the Christmas story is a story that is very familiar, but it's, it's very easy to miss. It's very easy to miss, especially with all of the, the pageantry and the commercialization that, that has come along with Christmas. Even when Christians tend to try to celebrate it by saying Jesus is the reason for the season, that's true, but sometimes our celebration just stops there, and we think that that's sufficient for celebrating this holiday. But there is so much more going on. And I think sometimes our struggle with grasping the depth of this holiday is rooted in our struggle in grasping who Jesus is. And, and for some of us, sometimes we look at Jesus in, in all of his stages of life, we look at baby Jesus as nothing but cute. We look at the boy Jesus as nothing but exemplary, a good example for us to follow. We look at the adult Jesus and say he's, he's nothing but wise, he's a good teacher, and we should listen to him. And while all those things are true, they aren't sufficient in giving us a picture of who Jesus is and how we are to respond to him. So this morning we're going to continue looking in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2 and try to understand more of who this Jesus is that we celebrate, we remember and worship this time of year, but really year-round. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 2. And, and what I'll say is that we really don't have a lot of information about Jesus as a child. I mean, this account in, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2 is really the only thing we have in Scripture for sure, but, but in, in a lot of historical documents, we don't have much information about Jesus at this age. There are some writings about Jesus during this stage of life that, that aren't really rooted in history. Uh, there, there's a collection of writings referred to as the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, it's, it's not considered Holy Scripture. It has never been considered Holy Scripture for a number of reasons, one of which being the contents of it are just wildly different from the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels. But also, there's no evidence that, that Thomas, uh, the disciple Thomas, ever wrote a Gospel. And, but there are a lot of accounts about Jesus at this, at this stage of life as a child. And they were written mostly to, to appease the desires of many Christians who wanted to learn about Jesus as a child. Like, we're worshiping this, this man, this God-man, but we know nothing about his childhood. We'd love to learn more about him. Kind of like if, you're, if you ever get into a band or an artist, you, you always like learning more about their, their origins, where they started. You want to hear their first album and things like that. And so because of that, people were creating these kind of mythological stories and legends of Jesus as a boy. One story in particular is the story of Jesus playing at this brook. This is in the Gospel of Thomas. And he's playing with the clay and he makes these pigeons with this little boy. And this, other, this little boy tattles on Jesus, you know, it's just like, that's you pick the wrong guy to tattle on, but he goes and he, he tells Joseph, Jesus' father, hey, your, your son is, is making pigeons and it's the Sabbath and you're not allowed to do that. So Joseph comes out and he's like, Jesus, what are you doing? You think you're Lord of the Sabbath? And uh, he is, that's, that's a Bible joke. But, uh, <laughs> but he comes out and he says, you know, he reprimands Jesus for making these birds and then Jesus claps his hands and the birds come to life and they fly away and all were amazed. Now, that's 
a cool story. That's, I mean, it's kind of neat. Uh, another story in the Gospel of Thomas, I, bl- I believe Thomas is, is Jesus throws a rock at a kid and he kills him. On, 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 and he falls dead, but then Jesus resurrects him. And the mother is celebrating and everyone's happy. Now, now, these stories are very different from what we have in the Gospel of Luke. In fact, when you compare those stories to the Gospel of Luke, Luke is really boring, you know? It's just like he just grew in wisdom and stature. Okay, great. I'd love to see, you know, some pigeon fly out, you know, somewhere. You know, like there's, there's nothing going on here. And what's interesting is that when you compare the accounts of Thomas to Luke, Luke is really boring, but I believe it points to the credibility of Luke's historical account. If these wild stories actually took place, Luke would have pointed to it. But Luke, in his intention of writing this book, was not to entertain people, was not to, to kind of reveal information about Jesus that people wanted to know. He is only interested in reporting the facts. And all he has is a very simple story of the birth of Jesus. A very ordinary story, actually, which is very interesting. And as we look more into the story of who Jesus was, we're going to find that Jesus actually is much more ordinary in some ways than we think. And that has something to say about our lives, which we'll get to in a moment. But I think it would be helpful just to, kind of, just to kind of give an overview of the story, walk us through it again. So we have Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. They go to Jerusalem for the Passover, which is about a week-long celebration. And, and they're there, they're celebrating, they have a great time. And then they're packing up to leave. You know, they have their, their Passover souvenirs, their I Heart Jerusalem t-shirts and everything. And they're, they're heading back home. And they're, they're on their journey. And they're, typically, you, you travel with extended family. And so, but a day goes by on their journey. And they realize, where is Jesus? And he's not with them. Similar to Home Alone once again. And so, you, so they freak out. And they have to turn back around another day's journey back to Jerusalem. Spend a third day trying to find him. And they finally find him in the temple. Now, before you, like, you know, criticize Mary and Joseph, like, I knew they shouldn't have gotten married so young. They're very irresponsible. <laughs> that, that's, you can't use that argument here. The, it's, it, it was typical to travel with family, and so everybody kind of shared the responsibility of caring for everybody. So it wasn't just all on Mary and Joseph. So this isn't an argument against getting married early. But uh, the point is, is that Jesus is, is lost. He's back in Jerusalem, and Mary and Joseph come to him. And they find him in the temple. And he is sitting amongst the teachers of the law. And he is listening to them. And he's asking questions. And he is answering their questions. And at a, gl- at a first glance, it just looks like Jesus has this kind of humble posture of learning, which is true. But typically, in, in the style of, of rabbinic teaching, a rabbi would sit with his students and ask questions. And that was actually a display of authority. And what we see is that Jesus is doing that very thing. At the age of 12, is acting like a rabbi. And we know that because Luke responds by saying, and the way that he responded, Jesus' answers to his questions, they were amazed. They were amazed by him. And this word amazed is used by Luke often in, in his accounts, and it's almost always used in response to something Jesus has said or done that is either miraculous or pointing to the divine. And in this moment, Jesus is displaying some kind of authority in the way that he asks his questions and answers their questions that is showing that there's something more to this child than what we might imagine. And then Mary confronts Jesus. And it's this moment where we think maybe this is the one place where Jesus is like naughty. Maybe this is the one place he made a mistake because it says that he made his parents anxious. And they come to him and they say, why have you done this? And then Jesus responds in saying, Did you not, why were you looking for me? Did you not know I would be in my father's house? 
And then it says that Mary and Joseph were astonished or confused, which is very interesting, which we'll get to in a second. But then it says they went home and Mary treasured these things in her heart. So this, this moment that did create a lot of stress and anxiety was actually a moment that was deeply treasured by Mary. Why? Because it was in this moment that Mary was reminded herself of who her son truly was. Mary and Joseph were astonished at Jesus' response because they themselves had lost sight of who Jesus truly was. And if Mary and Joseph can lose sight of who Jesus truly is, then I think that is very, very much, it's easy for us to fall into that same trap of losing sight of who Jesus truly is. Now, just so that you know that Jesus wasn't a rebel, uh, Luke goes on to say that, that Jesus went back to Nazareth with them, and he continued to submit to his parents and obey them, and he grew in wisdom and stature and strength and in favor with God and men. And so we see in Luke's account, really, there is this ordinary life to Jesus, Luke does not report on the, the, the pigeons. He does not report on this resurrection story from his childhood. He reports on a very basic story. Jesus had a very normal upbringing, so to speak. And what I want us to see is that in this story, I think we see something about the way God has designed life that we might miss out on. And it might not be that exciting when I, when I reveal this. But it is that the life we long to live for is actually more ordinary than we think. The life we long to live for is actually more ordinary than we think. And I want us to see this by just looking at two things in the Gospel of Luke this morning. We're going to look at the ordinary formation of Jesus and the ordinary faithfulness of Jesus. The ordinary formation and the ordinary faithfulness of Jesus. First, the ordinary formation of Jesus. At face value, there really isn't much that's, that's fascinating about Jesus as, as, as a child. He, he grows up, he's from Nazareth, uh, he lives with his parents. There, there's no real, nothing really that stands out. And there's a reason why we don't have a lot of stories about Jesus in his childhood, because there's not much to write home to mom about, so to speak. And it's interesting is that we see that his ordinary life, his ordinary life, it was, he didn't live a life of glamour or intrigue. He lived a life of obscurity, of, of even poverty and anonymity. Like people just didn't know who he was. He was, just, he was just Jesus the carpenter, the boy from Nazareth. And this is evidenced by the fact that Mary and Joseph were astonished. They were confused. Why were they confused? They, in some way, had almost forgotten what the angel had declared to them 12 years before. That, behold, the virgin will have a son, and his name will be Emmanuel, and he will save the world from their sins. You'd think, you'd think you'd remember that, you know? I mean, like, I'm a forgetful person, but like, you'd think you'd remember that moment. Mary and Joseph, the angel revealing the truth of who the son would be that they would bear. But their astonishment shows that up until this point, Jesus had lived a very normal life. So much so that they had forgotten almost what had happened 12 years before. We see that in verse 49 and 50. And Jesus said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Like I said, the significance here is that their confusion points to the fact that up until this point, Jesus lived a very normal, ordinary life. He grew in, in intellect. He grew physically. He grew emotionally, relationally, just like we all do. He lived a very ordinary, formational life. 
in, in commenting on this passage, Robert Stein in his book, Jesus the Messiah, he says, his parents, referring to Jesus' as parents, his parents' surprise reveals that despite the miraculous events surrounding his birth, the subsequent years have been quite normal, so much so that the uniqueness of their son and his divine calling had faded from their memory. But not only were Jesus' parents confused and astonished and shocked, Jesus' own neighbors were. When you, when you turn to the Gospel of Mark in his account, this is after Jesus has, has grown into adulthood, he started his ministry, and he returns home. And he comes back to Nazareth, and in, in Mark chapter 6, we see that his neighbors and the people in the community respond to him in this way. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They took offense at him because they knew who Jesus was. Like, this is, this is a nobody. Who does he claim? Why does he claim to have this kind of authority? Who does he think he is? We know this guy. He is a scam. They're, they're, they're offended that someone of obscurity would claim to be a person of notoriety and, and, and recognition. They're offended by this very normal, ordinary, poor carpenter. Because that is the story of Jesus up until this point. Now before you get really angry with Jesus' unneighborly neighbors, you have to see that this is actually part of God's plan. It wasn't like, you know, God was disappointed, like, oh, I wanted him to be an artist, but he became a carpenter. Like, that wasn't, like, God wasn't disappointed. It was God's plan all along for Jesus to develop, to be formed in obscurity. If you go back to Isaiah 53, one of the prophecies of who Jesus would be, in Isaiah 53, verse 2, we see, for he grew up before him, referring to Jesus, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Now, this is not saying that, like, Jesus won't make it on the cover of GQ any day soon. Like, it's, he's, it's really, it's talking about, it's not about his physical appearance, although Jesus may have been unattractive, we don't know. What it's pointing to is that there's nothing at face value that makes Jesus worthy of our attention. He is a nobody, so to speak. He grew up in a very ordinary, basic way. And I think this is telling of how God works. I mean, all throughout Scripture, God is using ordinary basic purposes to accomplish His purposes. He intended for God's entrance into the world through His Son to be very ordinary so that we might see the extraordinary nature of who Jesus truly is. And I think the Jesus Storybook Bible illustrates this beautifully. If you don't own a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible, get one. I don't care how old you are, how young you are, it is phenomenal. But in the story of Jesus' birth, we see the truth of Jesus' ordinary entrance and how it leads to his ordinary life. So take a look at the story. Suddenly, the star they had seen in the east started moving again, showing them the way. So the three wise men followed the star out of the big city along the road into the little town of Bethlehem. They followed the star through the streets of Bethlehem, out of the nice part of town, through the not-so-nice part of town, into the really not-nice-at-all part of town, down a little dirt track until it stopped right over <coughs> a, a little house. But wait, 
it, it wasn't a palace. And, and there weren't any guards or servants or flags or red carpets or trumpets or anything. Did they get it wrong? Or was this what God meant? It's absolutely what God meant. It was his intention to allow God's entrance and the person of Jesus into our world to come in such an ordinary way so that we wouldn't be di distracted by anything other than who Jesus truly is. To, to illustrate it, I, I remember my mom doing this one year for Christmas where she took our, our toys that she was getting us for Christmas and she wrapped them in clothes and then wrapped them in presents so that when we would shake it, it was like we were getting clothes. We're like, oh, we're getting our clothes for Christmas. And it was really disappointing. But then when we opened the present, we were going through these sweaters, and then we found the toy inside. We're like, this is amazing. It was even more exciting thinking that we were just getting sweaters, you know, which I like sweaters, first of all, but at that time I didn't. But the idea is that the, the presence of Christ entering our world came in such an ordinary wrapping, an ordinary gift bag so that we wouldn't be distracted by the outside, by the superficial things, but that we would be drawn into who Jesus truly is. The not-so-extraordinary birth of Jesus, the not-so-extraordinary childhood of Jesus, and the not-so-extraordinary career of Jesus as a carpenter points us to the fact that God actually cares about the very ordinary things of our lives and that he is involved in them. Kevin Emmert, he's, he's a writer for Christianity Today, uh, on this topic, he, he says this, he says, Jesus, he took on our broken humanity and everything it entails, even the ordinary and the mundane, which just means mundane is just boring part of life, the mundane aspects of human life, and he embraced work, family life, learning, growing, and monotony, and Jesus lived an ordinary life for most of his years, and in so doing, affirmed its goodness. He affirmed the goodness of living an ordinary life, which this doesn't sound like a message that we should say like right before the new year, like who's ready for an ordinary life? You know, like that doesn't seem that motivating, but this is the message I think we're seeing about the story of Jesus's birth and childhood. For 18 years, Jesus lived and served as a carpenter and was very dull and boring, nothing to write home to mom about. The only things that, that Luke gives us about Jesus after his birth, from birth to 12, and then from 12 to 30, Luke says actually the same thing, that he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. It's the same thing. That's all we have to go on. Jesus grew and formed just like a normal person. And in, in, in verses 50 and 51, we see this, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. The King of kings and the Lord of lords lived for 18 years as a humble, submissive child and employee, which is very interesting. Now, this is where some of you parents are probably like elbowing your kids, like, are you listening to Reed right now? Are you listening? Submit to your parents, you know? And while, yes, that's true, we as children, as students, we should. We need to learn to submit to the authorities that God has placed in our life. But Jesus is not just the representative of children and teenagers. He is the perfect representation of humanity, meaning that a life lived in humble submission to authority 
is a life that is actually designed by God. So Jesus' very normal, humble, submissive life to his parents and to his father who is his boss is very ordinary, but also very godly. There is something godly about ordinary formation and devotion. And so we see that in Jesus' early childhood, we see that it's marked by just ordinary formation. But as we turn to look at his years from 12 to 30, we see that it's marked by his ordinary faithfulness. His ordinary faithfulness. As we mentioned in verses 50 and 51, they went back down to Nazareth and Jesus submitted to his parents and he worked as a carpenter for 18 years, from 12 to 30, serving for 18 years. And, and we don't think about that very often. We don't think about that very often. We think, you know, well, yeah, yeah, he was a carpenter, we knew that. But what's more important, we know about his three-year ministry and his miracles and his teaching and ultimately the cross and the resurrection. But we skip past this, this longer period of time where Jesus lived in obscurity being a carpenter, where nobody knew him, where he was insignificant, so to speak. Is that just, I mean, was he just waiting around like, I don't really like building chairs, but I'll just do it until I'm ready, you know, to do my real work. Like, no, he was not just waiting around. But there's something significant about this period of time where Jesus was ordinarily faithful in the calling on his life at that time. For 18 years, Jesus served as a carpenter. Sometimes we move so quickly from the, cr the cradle to the cross that we miss the carpenter shop. And, and I think there's something very important to see here, that if we don't look clear, clearly, we'll miss out on what it means to live this very ordinarily faithful life that I believe God has designed us to live in some ways. I think that the seemingly insignificant and, and shockingly normal life of Jesus shows us that God values the ordinary, and that He is not only values it, but He is present in the ordinary things of our life. And you may think that's a boring point, like why, why are we talking about the insignificant parts of our life? Well, if we're going to be honest, it's probably because the majority of our day feels insignificant. I mean, if we're just honest, like there's so much of our day that feels like we're just kind of going through the motions and, and this is a waste of time and these are pointless tasks, whether it's a chore at home, it's a, an assignment at school, it's a job you're doing at work, whatever it may be, we feel like it's a waste of time. But if God is actually present with us, in the ordinary mundane things of life, it changes the way we view the ordinary things of life. I mean, some of us might be thinking, I don't, I don't want to write this essay on To Kill a Mockingbird. I, ne I need to be applying for colleges. I don't even like birds, so why would I even write this essay? You know, or, or you, you know, like, I don't want to file these documents. I don't want to do that. I, I need to be spending time with very important clients. You know, I, I need to be doing more important things. And I get that. And it's a, in some ways, it's a noble desire but what we can find ourselves slipping into is this idea that I only need to be a part of very important things. And to be doing these kind of menial things, these insignificant things, that's not for me. And while I get that, and I know that some of us need to be a part of bigger picture things, but if we are not faithful in the ordinary things that God has placed us in, if, he is, if we're not faithful in the ordinary relationships that God has placed us in, then why do we think that we'll be faithful in these bigger opportunities that he presents us with? We need to be very careful that we don't fall into that, that trap of thinking only big picture and missing out on the details of life. Because I believe God values the ordinary. And we think he doesn't. And we think we shouldn't value it either. And that's why we only want to be a part of the big picture. But in, in his book, 
Ordinary by Michael Horton, in writing about this very concept, he says this. He says, our big ideas to change the world can become ways of actually avoiding the opportunities we have every day right where God has placed us to glorify and enjoy Him and to enrich the lives of others. Sometimes the best way to change the world is to live extraordinarily in what looks like an ordinary existence, to radically love and serve those around us every day, no matter where we are. Sometimes we, we have this desire to, we, we want to we want to provide clean drinking water for people that, that don't have access to it. And we should, yes, absolutely. We want to be a part of, of, of organizations like International Justice Mission. We want to end slavery around the world. Yes, absolutely, we should. But when we're only thinking in these big picture, in this big picture mindset, and we're, we're failing to be faithful in the small things that God has placed us in, what makes us think we're going to be faithful in the big things if we cannot even faithfully love and serve the people under our own roof? in our own neighborhood, in our workplace, in our schools. It's what Jesus said later on in the Gospel of Luke chapter 16, that the one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and the one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. We have to see that God values the ordinary, not just for the sake of valuing the ordinary, but by valuing it, we are able to live a life that is more extraordinary than we possibly could have imagined. Andrew Byers, he's the chaplain at St. Mary's in, in England, he says that if we cannot be faithful to do our statistics homework or collaborate with our coworkers, then we may lack the strength of character required for dealing with the meticulous annoyances of a more radical life beyond the romanticized horizon. I, I think what he's saying is that we, we all long for a meaningful life. We all want our life to mean something, to matter, to count for something. And we think that the only way that can happen is if we do big things that are remembered throughout history. But I think that we've missed something here. That God is, yes, I think He is calling many of us to, to be a part of huge change on big levels, but that is no excuse to be unfaithful in the very ordinary things of life. We all want our lives to count for something. We all want to be a part of bigger things, but that is not mutually exclusive from being faithful in the ordinary things. So as we enter into a new year, you know, we have New Year's resolutions we all think about, we all have these goals, and we're amped up, we're fired up, and then February comes, and then we feel stupid because we didn't do anything, you know, and like, we all do, we, we've all been there, we have these resolutions, and, and one thing I would suggest to you, not, not that resolutions are bad, but... But one thing I would suggest is maybe instead of adding things to your list of like, I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to grow in this, excel in this, that's great. But perhaps maybe our resolution for this year should be to not necessarily add things to our plate, but to be more faithful and intentional and present in the things that God has already placed in our lives. To not think about new tasks, new things to be put on, but how can I be more diligent more faithful, more intentional with my family, with my friends, with my neighbors, with the tasks that God has given me now, what does that look like? Let's not miss the ordinary calling that God has placed in our life. And I thought I was going to get through this sermon without quoting Tim Keller. I came this close, but then he, had, he sent out this tweet the other day that was just perfect, and it had, I, I've got to put it in. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But, uh, but he, it, was, it was in reference to Christmas. 
And, and, and Tim Keller says, if Jesus became incarnate to live among the ordinary, then what we call ordinary is really extraordinary. And that's just so true. I think that captures exactly what the ordinary life formation and faithfulness of Jesus points us to. So the two favorite words that you love to hear in every sermon, in closing, uh, I, I'd, love to, I'd love to just share just, just three things that we can be thinking about for this year as we head into 2015. And the first is this, to, to adopt this formational posture that we see in the life of Jesus, this formational posture of humbling ourselves in, to the point of where we learn from others, but also to the point where we submit to the authorities that are in our lives, whether that's our parents, whether that's our bosses, our teachers, the governing authorities, what does it look, look like for us to humbly submit and to have that posture as we see in the life of Jesus? There's something about that, and it's unique. It's unique that, that Jesus submits to the authorities, to his parents, and simultaneously Luke is saying, and he grew in wisdom. There's something, there's a connection between Jesus growing in wisdom and his ability and willingness to submit to the authority of his parents. This is true not just for those who are young and who have bosses, but it's true for those who are older and who are the boss, that we all need to learn to rightly, humbly submit to those who have authority in our life that God has placed in our life. So adopting a formational posture. Second is having that faithful presence. As I said, it's not about adding more things to our to-do list for this year, but how can we be more faithful and intentional in the places and with the people that God has placed in our life already? What does that look like? How can we begin to be faithful and to truly see and believe that God values and is present in the ordinary things of our life, that he is present in the ordinary things of our life? Do we truly believe that? Do we see that? If there's anything that is true about the story of Christmas, it is that God loves using ordinary things to accomplish his great extraordinary purposes. And if we are only thinking about doing extraordinary things, we may miss out on his ordinary means to those extraordinary ends. So those two things, the, the formational posture, the faithful presence, those are good things that we should pursue. But if they are without the favor of God, they're empty, they're incomplete. We see that Jesus had a formational posture of, of humbling himself and submitting to the authorities. We see that he was faithful and intentional in the places that God had placed him, but he also had favor with God. And so the, this thing that I would also encourage us to, to meditate on and reflect on is, is yes, am I, am I pursuing a formational posture of, of humility and submission? Am I being faithful, faithfully present in my life? But all of that really means nothing if we have not come to find a favorable position with God, if we have not come to find ourselves having the favor of God that is extended to all by virtue of Jesus Christ, that is the purpose of this story. It is not just for us to say, you know, I need to be more faithful in the ordinary. I need to be more submissive and, and, and understand how to have this humble posture. Yes, we should, but what we see in the life of Jesus, what we see in, see in the story of Christmas is that ultimately, Jesus has come that we might have favor with God as he has favor with God. That when we come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, we share in his favor. 
We share in his role as a son. We become sons and daughters adopted into the family of God, that we are no longer enemies and strangers, but we are children dearly loved by him. This is far more important than just having a humble posture and a faithful presence. We need all to find a favorable position with God. And the beautiful thing is that that is available to all who trust in Jesus. That's the story of Christmas. That is why he has come. The story of Christmas is that God enters into our world, that he became human, not just so that he could die for us, but so he could also suffer with us and understand our pain, understand our hurts. He was born in order to die. We must be very careful that our celebration and worship of Jesus doesn't stop at the manger, but it leads to a bloody cross. And I know that may sound morbid and dark, especially right after Christmas, but that's the point of Christmas. It doesn't stop in the manger. It moves on to his mission that we see culminating at the cross where he declares it is finished. God stands ready and able to forgive, to invite, to reconcile and restore all things that are broken, starting with us when we come to place our faith and trust in Christ. So when it comes to the year 2015, as we're beginning to think of this year, yes, let's be more humble in our posture. Let's be more faithful in our presence. But above that, let us all continue to seek the favor of God through Christ Jesus. For some of us, that might be for the first time ever. And if that is you, I invite you to respond to the good news that God has come for you. That as opposed to other religions that say, man must work his way to God, God has come to us. That is the story of Christmas. And this is only possible because of the story of Christmas. God put on flesh to suffer with us and for us. This is a very strange but very beautiful way to save the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would open our eyes to see you more fully, that you would give us the hands to serve more faithfully, that you would give us minds to think deeply about who you are. And so, Lord, I ask that you would, that you would equip us to, to be your servants who are faithful in the ordinary things of life, that we would be humble in our posture of submitting to those in authority over us. But above all, Lord, may you grant us the grace to find favor with you, not through what we have done, or not what through we, we do, but through what Christ has already done for us. We pray this all in his name and for his glory. Amen.